Hello and welcome to Misbehave, the podcast where we explore human behavior in a business context. Season two of Misbehave is all about uncovering behavioral patterns which create success in life and business. We're joined by highly driven, accomplished individuals to assess their behavioral patterns and dive into how behaviors have influenced their journey. On this episode, we're joined by Mark Mosley, founder of London-based Pestcon and a recent contestant of BBC's The Apprentice. Before becoming an expert in pest control, he was a soldier and security specialist operating in remote, hostile environments around the world. We talk about everything from the behaviours conditioned in a military environment to the stark contrast of the typical entrepreneurial traits in Sir Alan Sugar's boardroom. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. We are so happy that you joined us. Thank you for having me. Maybe a good little kickoff would be just for you to give us, and we're going to kind of get into more of the detail around your journey, but for you to give us a little summary of your journey so far. Um, my journey so far, um, on leaving school at 16, I didn't really fancy going to college. I did okay in my um, exams, but I thought I want to get out there and earn a bit of money. Um, so I joined the army at 16 and then um, I spent nine years serving all over the world. And then after that, I was an electrician for a, a year and didn't like that. And then I got a job working in private security in the Middle East for six years in Israel, Jordan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, name it. It was a bit of trouble. We were sort of sent out there. And then after that, that came to an end. And then I started my own business, pest control business. And then most recently, I was on the TV show, The Apprentice, fighting it out against a number of other candidates in the boardroom with Lord Sugar. That's my journey so far. <laughs> well, that was, that was a good synopsis. <laughs> whistle stop to it. Yeah, so that's all you need. And you actually managed to do it against some of your dominant patterns, which we're going to get into in a minute. So that was good. Um, But let's start with that. Let's start with sort of that military career. And, you know, we've talked, you talked a little bit about some of the dominant patterns that almost the stereotypical military career brings out in someone. And, you know, you've got big dominances in process, in detail, in being more reflective. So, can you talk a little bit about that sort of military career journey and where you think some of those behaviours came from in that environment? I think um, when you go through training, you have so many things drilled into you and you see people immediately go one of two ways. Are they going to be a sheep or are they going to be a shepherd, you know, a leader or a follower? And I gravitated to trying towards or lean towards leading the team um, rather than sort of sitting at the back. And that's not to sort of you know, stand out and be show office. There's always a saying in the military, you know, works well when watched. When all the officers are watching, some people will start to really work hard. And then when the officers go away, they sort of sit at the back. But um, I don't know, just gravitate towards being the leader. Um, and then once you're seen in that role, you get pushed up through the military quite quickly through your career. And I enjoyed it. And I never, ever told someone what to do. There's one thing I never said in the military. I never said, right, you over there, go and do that. I always asked them and say, oh, you know, uh, Jono, would you mind going and doing that? You never get a no when you ask someone. When you sort of tell someone in the military to go do something, it puts their back up. So um, that was always uh, something that I always tried to do in the military, ask rather than tell. And with regards to the behaviours, uh, I think you just yeah have things known naturally drilled into you that it automatically brings out certain behaviours in you, whether that be um, not aggressive. You get trained to be aggressive if you go to war. Um, but at the same time, I don't know trying to be um, calm in pressurized situations. That's always I've tried to be. And I'll always think first. I'll never jump into anything two feet first. I've always been one to, let me just sit back and take a methodical approach on this. And if it takes me two or three days to plan something, then that is exactly what I do. And that's what I always did in the military. Because if you jump two feet in and make rash decisions, 
especially on operations and someone you know could get hurt. And I think that's really interesting, Mark, around some of the changes, I suppose, that we've seen over the last sort of 10, 20 years. And particularly, you know, I've, I've got a number of people who've been in my life that are from the military. And there's been changes in even the, the bit, what, you know, that dictatorial piece around tell versus ask. And, you know, I think a lot, a lot of years ago, it was very much a tell environment. And I think that approach has, has gradually started to change, but I suppose there's also an element as a leader. Sometimes you need to make a decision and it can't be, it can't be every consensus by, you know, decision by consensus. It has to be, this is what we're doing. And people just then follow. How did you, how did you find your approach worked in that environment? Yeah, I think, well, obviously you've worked with people for a number of months or years leading up to certain things that you do in the military you should have that automatic respect with the rank you've got for new people coming in but you know there's a there's a big social aspect in the military you know that might be going out having a pint down the pub on a friday and saturday and you you become so close friends you get such a tight-knit environment and people trust you um and that was always the thing so it's outside of the workplace having this you know nice environment not being too friendly with people because at the end of the day you're their boss at the same time, you need to gain that respect, and that means that you know you join them in you know their social circle, if you like. So that, that was always a big thing. I think people always did as they were asked, um, just because you had that you know friendly relationship rather than this boss relationship. Because some people just you know might not do what you ask. And again, if you're on operations and people don't have the respect for you, then you are in bother, and the officers will see that in the back of the queue. So um, yeah. Do you feel like that's something that you've used in sort of the career pathway that you've had post-military? Is that it's still still the way that you work now? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a big thing. Like when I first started my business, it was a lot of pressure. I think any business owner, uh, you know, knew this. I've been on so many business courses. I speak to so many business owners and everyone has that same thing. You know, the money's tight when you first start a business. The pressure's there and it does build up. I think I've gone about things the wrong way, you know, where technically has turned up late for a job and that's my biggest pet hate is tardiness if someone turns up late then i really get upset because we always told you know five minutes early is on time on time is late and uh, i remember seeing a job once uh, and my technician he was turned up late for every job so i drove out to his first job and then uh, he turned up half eight he was supposed to be late and i jumped out of the van why are you late this that and the other and it was the pressure of you know trying to get the money in <laughs> trying to keep the customers happy and I knew for the fact when it got to five o'clock, he'd be late for his last job of the day. So it was all that one into one and I sort of flew off the handle. Uh, and I remember seeing back in my vehicle after that thinking, why did I just do that? And it's just sort of thing, you need to sort of have the respect to people because I've now lost his respect. So I've just had a go at him. Um, so yeah, that was probably starting the business for the first two years. That was the hardest, the pressure that got to me. Um, and I didn't go about things the right way, but now money's coming in so now it's all calmed down and now you know once a month we'll take the guys out and we go into that social circle go into town we'll play games you know whatever it be temping bowling have a few beers and we've got that sort of relationship where that trust element comes in and i think that's so crucial in today's modern world and that's a really lovely example of where often what we see in pressured situations is your behaviors go to the dominant end of the scale so actually that that value, it's actually probably a value for you, that value about being on time, respecting people's time. And also that you, that'll come from that dominant process detail piece in you that often that being on time links with those. And when that's in a measured way, 
that's like you at your best and that's you upholding values that you want to roll out across the business. But what can happen in that pressure cooker is that whatever your behaviours are, they become way more dominant in those pressurised situations. And that's really what you described. Tell us a little bit, Mark, do you think pre- because we have lots of conversations with people that we work with around, you know, people ask the question, do you think that behavior is natural or do you think that it comes from, a, is it conditioned through an environment? And our answer to that is usually it's a mix of the two. With the process and detail piece in you, we know, you know, how a military environment and the processes that come alongside that and the detail behind it can drive those behaviors. Do you think it became became heightened and more conditioned for you in that environment? Or do you think that you had pieces of that in you pre that? Yeah, it's always that thing, isn't it? Is it nature or nurture? Are you born with these things in your DNA or is it something that's mm. been, you know, wound um, into you as you're growing up? And I, me, I always go towards the latter end. I think it's the, you know, the nurture. I think it's something, that the environment you grow up in, if you're, you know, grab in a, probably a violent environment, then you're going to, probably have them tendencies in you, whereas if you grow up in a nice home environment. Um, so that's why I look at it. In the military, it was always, you know, you're going to be getting told off when you go through basic training, you'll be getting shouted at. And um, it's only after about a year and a half after I finished all my training, I got to my unit. And that's where, you know, you start working with people and you're not getting shouted at and things, but you're still really in a heightened environment and you're expecting to get shouted at. And you, it just sort of goes from the high end of, yeah, being... Um, treated pretty badly to, oh, okay, I'm now here in my unit and now, you know, um, we're going to work as a team. And it's, it was hard to adjust uh, because you had this aggression in you and it had been drilled into you to be aggressive. And then when you got to unit, it was sort of a completely different environment. So, yeah, I think it was something that was definitely, um, yeah, drilled into me. And I think it has stayed with me throughout. And I, I don't lose my temper too much. But when I started my business, I was a completely different person than what I am now. I mean, yeah, money wasn't coming in and we are spending so much money and I was not shouting at people too much, but I was certainly rubbing up people who were especially employees. So I think um, myself, I think it's uh, certainly nurtured into your wife, these behaviours come out. Yeah, and I think one of the things, Laura, and I often talk to people about is the fact that with the insight, it allows you to understand how to flex when you need to. So it doesn't, that might be your dominant patterns, but it doesn't mean you can't then flex. So, you know, where you need to dive in and be more responsive and more proactive, you will be able to do that. This doesn't mean you can't, but it's about learning how to flex depending on the situation, I suppose. I think you're exactly right. Now it's sort of a bit more controlled, whereas um, sometimes it's um, an automatic thing originally, especially in the military, it was always automatic. And then when I started the business, it was always automatic where these behaviors come out. Whereas now I'm not, I'm far more controlled and I, I um, have a tendency to probably go the other way and just calm things down. If something's happened that's not right, um, someone's not turned up to the job and they've just, you know, decided to have an early afternoon, I don't start shouting at people anymore. I sort of have a control, sit down with them and say, look, what's happened here? What's going on? And then you speak to people and it could be something like, oh, my mum's sick or, you know, I don't fly off the hand anymore. So I'm, I'm certainly more, you know, under control these days uh, just because I feel happy the way the business is going and the team we've got. Work in progress. Work in progress. All of us are, aren't we? But <laughs> thinking about, <laughs> um, thinking about a little bit around, but that piece around flexing and you've got that piece in you around, you said it right at the very beginning around not, just jumping into something and actually taking a moment. And I'm interested to know throughout your military career, and then obviously we're going to get onto your career post that in a minute, 
What have you learned about slowing down and speeding up? Because obviously there's completely varying circumstances in a military environment where there's times where you really need to think before you do something because the stakes are high but there's also times I'm sure where you don't have time to think and you've got to just act and you've got to be able to almost pull on those slow down speed up levers can you talk a little bit about that for you yeah I think the perfect example in the military would be doing a six-month operational tour where everything's high and your senses if you're on a patrol and you think well someone could get hurt here if not me by standing on you know a homemade bomb or something and then you've got the complete opposite side to that is when you're back in camp um for another six months before you go somewhere else and there's just nothing happening and they get they're trying to find jobs for you the military to say right can you walk around the camp to see if there's any anyone's put any bags next to the fences or can you go and sweep the parade square and that's sort of the um complete yin and yang if you like and the complete opposites so we'd have this heightened environment for six months where people are getting hurt and you're worried for your own safety you're worried for the safety of the team and then a few months later six months later you're now back in camp and you just sat there and i think you know some people could handle it quite well and others couldn't and that's why you see a lot of military guys craving that next thing like, i want to go into private security i miss that heightened adrenaline you know is someone going to get hurt am i going to get out i need to be in that environment and you see others who sort of shy away from it and go, I don't want to be in that environment again. I don't want to be on operations. So that was always the, uh, the the two opposites that I found. And I really enjoyed sort of, you know, going out and I think it was seeing the world and traveling, not so much worrying about getting hurt so much, but certainly seeing the world. And that's why I went into the private security sector after it was working eight weeks on and three weeks off. And by three weeks off, I just picked a place in the world to go and travel it. And then I'd work back in that environment, have this you know, on edge, uh, heightened alertness in me. And then I just go and wind down for three weeks in the Maldives or something and then come back and do it all again. So that was, uh, that was myself personally. But some people um, didn't like that. And some people, you know, myself, I love that. This brings us nicely on to the fact that you then decide to throw yourself into a TV show, you know, <laughs> called The Apprentice. Was this to to give you the high that you maybe you were missing after you came out of the the, the private security? Um, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that show is set up really to attract, I suppose, more typical type of entrepreneurs, the behaviours where, you know, they've got this real bias for action and they're big visionaries and they want everything done yesterday. And we're really interested to know sort of, you know, you tell us a little bit about that, that what it felt like, what was the experience like for you, Mark, going into that kind of environment? Exactly right. What you said about, do you need that high? And it was, I think things had become a little bit stagnated in myself personally, the business was doing well. And I thought, what is the next challenge? And I just happened to be watching the TV show, The Apprentice. I've never seen it before. I'd hurt my ankle playing football the week before. I thought, I'm not going to risk my ankle again on a Thursday night, so I'll sit down and watch TV show. And then at the end of the show, Lord Sugar, you're my next business partner, apply now or something. I looked into it and it was series 17 and 17 is my lucky number. I was born on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. So I thought, do you know what? I'll put an application into my morning. I did. And then that weekend I got an interview. I went through so many interviews and uh, they said, I'm on the show. And I got a phone call actually on my 17th birthday, 17th on my 39th birthday. Uh, when I was in Sri Lanka. That's wishful thinking, yeah, Mark. 17th, I know, <laughs> yeah, I got that on the 17th of March, I think, my birthday in Sri Lanka. And they sort of said, right, we're going to offer you a place. And then that was that high then. The rest of the whole, well, they said to me, you've got three weeks to get your business plan. And I said, well, I've got two weeks and holy, I've not got my laptop. So you've got a week to get your business plan in. So I panicked when I came back. But that was that high, I, that adrenaline. Thing. I thought, why, this is something I wanted, you know, that's going to not make me loads of money by going on the show, but at least give me that profile and that 
you know, that adrenaline again that I crave so much from being in the military or private security. And it was exactly that and what an experience it was, you know, just going into that first boardroom. Uh, I was the 17th candidate to walk into the lobby as well. So I was like, and I, they put me in quarantine in hotel room number 17. So before I walked into the lobby and I see I was 17, I was like, I've won this, guys. You guys are right now, everyone. So, um, but yeah. <laughs> so I thought I'd find this show. The before numbers are like, Yeah. So when we walked into that first boardroom, <laughs> I mean, there's Lord Sugar sat there with Karen Brady and, you know, this other guy called Claude Littler. It was um, very, I don't know, that high. Like we could all, I could look at all the other candidates' faces and everyone's white as a sheet. And when he's speaking to you, thinking, oh, my God, I've got to try and be articulated. And he's saying, Mark, you've travelled to more than 100 countries. What, are you on the run or something? And I was like, no, I'm travelling. <laughs> you're trying to be, you know, really cool in front of everyone. And then you just learn as the process goes on. You're all the same as each other. We've all got small businesses. You're all normal people. But um, I think there's obviously everyone's trying to be that alpha. And uh, that was always the fun bit. I want to be project manager. I want to be project manager. You see Karen Brady sat there just sniffing herself going, oh, this is going to be great for TV. So, um, but yeah, but it was, it, was, <laughs> it was trying to get that high again. And that's exactly what it gives, you know, where some people might have went on there for fame. I just went on there just for that adrenaline high. And that's really interesting because you're right. I, I think so many, I think there's now, because there's so many reality shows now, I think there's this misconception that everybody goes on a reality show for fame. And actually, I think, unfortunately, that's the vast majority, but there's so many people who do. I mean, there are, believe it or not, still some people that go on Love Island looking for love <laughs> and go on The Apprentice looking for just a different experience. Yeah, I think But, so. you know, it, it's interesting and that sits, sits with your patterns. Um, I want you to share with the listeners, because I know we had a little chat about this and the, the number 17 fits really lovely with that. This mathematical approach that you took to The Apprentice, because I think that that's just fascinating to me. I mean, even some of the mathematical calculations that you did pre the show and then what you were doing on the show. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I've always been a numbers man. My English was never the best as you can probably tell but maths is my strong suit and um yes obviously i was a bit superstitious with number 17 but we had a week of quarantine it stuck us in a hotel um just in case covid appeared so there was one candidate danny she was meant to go on the last series and the day before she was about to go on she had covid so she got pulled off it and then eventually went through all the dishes again and came on to our but she was so happy with she got anti yeah. goodbye and the year before they went to wales um so um I um I looked, <laughs> exactly she was well happy. Um so I looked at the numbers and I thought, right, Lord Sugar has never invested in anyone over the age of 31. Um the general thing is about 28 years of age, and the last seven, I think it was about the last eight or nine years it had been a female. So straight away, like, I'm not trying to put myself down, but I thought he's not going to invest in someone you know older because he wants to invest in someone younger to see things grow. And I think I read a comment as well where he said, um, I want to invest in acorns that grow into oak trees. And I thought, well, I'm a bit over the hill for this. So I knew that mine wasn't really going to um, materialise myself getting uh, the investment. But also, as the tasks were going on, I and uh, I'd always mentioned it to my roommates, how we watched that if one team had more numbers on it than the other, the team that had the most numbers on it were going to lose the task. And it, it was noticed. And then if the team numbers were the same, whoever Karen Brady was following, that team would lose. And I started picking this up. So when it came to my task in week eight, we had five people, the other team had four. And Karen was following us. And I even said to my team, I said, look, we've lost this before we've even started. If the numbers add up and, you know, it can be manipulated any way it can be, the show they're probably all listening to this and they'll be like he's he's a bastard mark but um yeah uh, 
<laughs> calling a few things out. Um, we're not going to get sued by Alan, Alan Sugar, are we? For this, I don't think so, but I called a few things out in the board and that weren't aired and uh, that didn't go down too well. But um, yeah, so it was certainly a numbers thing for me. And uh, I think the, you know, the statistics don't lie. And that's why I've always been that way. And I'm just counting on things as I was going through the process, even saying to the team, look, I think we're going to lose this task. We've got more numbers. Um, it was in Dubai when it was six versus six. And Karen Brady was following us. So I said to my team, I said, no, I think we're going to lose because we've got Karen following us. Anyway, on the flight out, we um, suddenly came down ill. And then we lost uh, Megan with sea sickness and then Sahel went down with concussions. There was only three of us left at the end of the task. And we'd spoken to the other team and they'd made so much money. And uh, it was the morning of the boardroom. I sat in the garden with Victoria and she was panicking saying, we've lost this task. And I said, I think we've won it. Because we had three people left at the end and they had six. And if the numbers are right, they're going to give us it. Anyway, got to the board and listed the other team. You've got a 60% refund, the other team. So this team win. I looked at Victoria and walked out and said, told you. So, um, yeah, so that's how it works. So This is hilarious. The, list, the listeners are going to be thinking, really? Like, and you know what? what's going, running through my mind as you're talking, Mark? Like, do you believe in manifestation? Because, you know, I, I'm thinking if I was on your team and you were telling me we were lose, we were going to lose the, the gig before we'd started it, just because of sort of the mathematical uh, uh, calculations you'd made, I'd be thinking, come on, Mark, this isn't the winner's spirit that you should have. Like, I know. Well, what's your thoughts on that? But I was also at the same time when we were doing other tasks, I'd be like, we're going to win this one because the numbers add up. So, um, yeah, I, I don't want to, I didn't want to try and put the team down too much, but... At the same time, I'm a realist. I'm just trying to give everyone expectations of what is likely going to happen. And if that makes people work hard, which I hope it would do, they might go, right, do you know what? We're going to prove Mark wrong here. We're going to win this one. Um, which never you know what it is? It's but, interesting because when you said that, when you said, come on, Mark, I would be thinking, I would have probably said two other words to you and said, we're definitely going to win this now because exactly, you said that. That's exactly what some people <laughs> so, will do that. Whereas other people will go, oh, he's got a point. He's, the numbers have been adding up that way. Whereas others are going, do you know what, we're going to prove you wrong. And that's what I think a lot of people in the house were like anyway. They were certainly on the down days or something. They'd pick themselves up because that's the, what a business owner is or a leader is. Do you know what I mean? They won't take no for an answer and they won't have it said that they aren't going to win the task again. However, the numbers added up every time. So even in the last two tasks that I weren't a part of because I was um, left the show, as soon as I looked at the teams, you know, I didn't know who won, switched it on, and that team's got more than that one, so that one's won in the first five minutes. And then when the numbers are the same, I was like, who's Karen following? That team's going to win. And it worked out that way you know, in the last two episodes that I weren't a part of, so it was always going to be the case. I'm interested to know on all of the, the hundred countries that you visited, have you gone to Vegas and did you win a lot of money? <laughs> <laughs> And if you so. haven't, can we go to Vegas with you and win a lot of money? That's <laughs> like the hangover. Um, no, I mean, yeah. I, in fact, I did go to Vegas. Um, I've got a hopefully a coolish story. There was a, um, I flew into LAX um, and it was about two o'clock in the morning. There's no public transport. There was no taxis, no buses. And I needed to get to Koreatown to get to my hostel. And uh, this guy heard me speaking going, oh, I can't believe there's no public transport. What a joke this is. And this guy said to me, look, I want you to come with me. I, you know, I live in uh, you know, LA. I'll drop you off. He dropped me off. It was about an hour out of his way, actually. He dropped me off and I said, oh, here's $50. And he went, no, I won't accept that. So I, anyway, I threw it on his seat as he um, got out to get help me in my bag. Anyway, you see the 50, he come running up to my hostel door and I was like, don't accept money. I said, I don't accept money. I said, all right. He said, do me a favor, stick it on red when you get to Vegas. So I was like, all right. Otherwise, so when I got to Vegas uh, a week or two later, the first thing I did, I was, this is all casinos at the bottom of my hotels. First thing I did, I went straight to a roulette board and went, right, 
$50 red and it came in. So I got $100 and I was like, do you know what? That was meant to be. So that was my first <laughs> And then I went back years later and uh, off uh, 100 euros, I won uh, 3,500, uh, 100, $100, I won $3,500. And that was in the military. Wow. People just go, ah, this works. So I was like, yeah. So, and I know when to cash out, but that was me counting numbers. That's just luck. And 17, first thing I did, I put $10 on 17 and it came in. And uh, that was it. So it won me a bit of money. It's amazing. And I think, yeah, I mean, what you described there, it, there is a huge amount of luck in it, but there's also like that just goes to show when often people who've got that high detail and have got that process bit, the, the number piece comes quite naturally to them. And what you did there was that you totally played on those behavioral strengths that you've got to be able to spot some of that stuff and, and let that inform some of the decisions that you make. When you think about all the different tasks that you guys did, because, you know, Sarah said at the beginning around this whole, the apprentice does typically attract that sort of very atypical entrepreneurial profile of drive for action, visionary, quite aggressive. And let's be honest, the tasks are set up for those types of people to excel. You know, they give you tasks at very short notice. They're very fast paced. They make you think on your feet. And some of your dominant behaviors, your strengths are in other areas. So can you talk a little bit about the feeling of some of those tasks and some of the ones that you found really difficult and others where you felt like you excelled and what the difference was? Yeah. So you get given, um, so you turn up to the, the morning of the task and Lordship will say, right, you're going to be doing this. And they give you a A4 iPad that will have 20 pages on it. And there's You've got 10 minutes to read these 20 pages. And in the first couple of episodes, I was trying to read everything, trying to take notes. And then after the sort of episode, two or three, it works out. Well, I just need to pick, sift through the best bits, pick out the best bits. Um, but again, it comes down to me wanting to sit back and think about it. But straight away from there, they say, right, no talking. You now got to sit down with however many of you in your team and discuss it. And who's going to be the project manager? And that's the first thing. I want to be project manager. This is suited to me. And if, if the task was suited to someone, again, the numbers, you're going to lose it. Um, so that was always the thing where I wanted to sit back, like Bradley with his motorbike, love motorbikes. I was like, he's lost. Plus they've got more people on their team than us. So, um, yeah, um, I always wanted to sit back. And when it came to task eight, when I went, it was, um, everyone going, oh, I think we should have the tickets, 150 pounds, 200 pounds. And it was only after I come out of this meeting and I thought, who is going to pay 150 to 200 pounds for a ticket to go to their local prison? This isn't Alcatraz. I said, we need to drop this to 100 <laughs> to 110 pounds. Um, and then they said, well, we need all that on camera when you drive into Shrewsbury. So I said, you know, we need to drop this to ticket price because it just doesn't make sense and it's ridiculous. And that was me, obviously, my sitting back nature and thinking, right, now I need to think about this. And that's what I needed. I just couldn't be thrown into that environment without thinking it too much. And that's what he had me for. He goes, 200 pound a ticket, 150 pound a ticket, 110 pound a ticket. Make up your mind, Mark. And I said, look, I've got a sense check this thing. No one's going to pay this money. So, yeah, it was very difficult for myself personally getting thrown into this environment. And after reading a 20-page document, going, right, you've got six minutes to discuss it, go. And then you just, it's, it's chaos. And it's just, it's not factual in the business world because you just wouldn't do that. But at the same yeah. time, the show and the editors, they've got to create Car Crash TV. That's why people love it so much. And it can be manipulated whichever team wins at the end of the day. If they want someone to have a hard time in the board, I'm like, let's test him out. And I, I got tested out on week one with Lord Sugar just completely lying to me. Going, Mark Zimmer was going to pay for three tickets this money. And you jumped in and I was like, 
that's not correct. And I was just like, Karen, that's not the reality of the situation. And all it was, it was a test for him to see how I reacted. And I bit. I was mm-hmm. like, no, you're wrong. This is absolute bullshit. Like, <laughs> and he's probably thinking, no. But I, I liked you on paper. You failed the test. Yeah, I liked you on paper. But unfortunately, you've not uh, passed this bit. So, um, but yeah, so the show was completely like foreign to all my behaviours where I just want to look at something, take a methodical approach and take my time over it. Whereas in the show, it's get him in there, you know, create this chaos and it just creates entertainment at the end of the day. And that's what the show is for. And I wouldn't knock it one bit either. Even like running around Brighton yeah. and Karen Brady's hiding items in shops, running in there saying, don't tell me where this item is. And I'm running around the shop, have you got a truck, mate? And he says, well, we did have one earlier, but I'm not sure what it is. Have you got one or not? I don't know. <laughs> Karen Brady's strong above her head. And I was like, you bastards. So, yeah. <laughs> But now I look back and look at you know a, a friend in this and think, oh, do you know what? It's what a load yeah. of what a load of fun it was. And, uh, yeah, that's the best bit about yeah. it. They're having a laugh, and then I can look back and have a laugh at the time. You're like, why are you hiding it? Do you know what's so interesting, Mark? Though it's like we talk a lot about different leadership styles and mm-hmm. and what a typical entrepreneur looks like. And we get asked this a lot, especially when we do work with and we do a lot of work with younger people where they're making decisions about whether they should start a business or what things they should study. Mm-hmm. And I think what we always say is leadership comes in lots of different shapes and sizes. And and actually different behaviors bring different strengths. And you know, not every business owner or entrepreneur has to be the visionary. Sometimes we talk about visionaries and then integrators. Sometimes the integrator usually lends itself that more of the patterns you've got, that real methodical thinking through chronologically putting in the processes, thinking through the detail, reflecting, doing the sense checks, as you say, you know, sometimes it's it's okay to have someone else in the business who's more, who has more of that visionary, big picture drive for action. I agree. Where, where we find, yeah, where we find like, you know, it's not one size does not fit all. It's about plenty of strengths, but also appreciating when you put different people around you who are different to you that's where the magic happens right it's it's finding people tell us a bit about the the team that you've got now that you work with how did you find the the kind of the right people to work alongside you yeah I mean we've gone through a number of people to be found um but yeah it's always you know (laughs) I've always said and again I said it that Warden several times I said it's all about having the right people in the right place and using the technology you've got around you and implement it correctly and that's what it all came down to First year and a half of the business, it was just all over the place. We hadn't got the correct technology involved. You know, we're using email addresses, which which weren't professional. Um, and it just felt as though everything was on my shoulders. The money that was going into the business and trying to come up with ideas, how are we going to get more work in? And thousands of pounds for pay-per-click and Google is incredible. And just seeing that money going out all the time. And then, you know, getting the correct people in, got someone in the office, um, husband uh, is a major in the army so i tried to keep the ex-military thing going because that's the thing i trust and i always lean on quite a lot um and she's just been breath of fresh air she's done so much for the business and the weight that's just taken off my shoulder where i can actually go and have meetings do networking events and i know that the office is just running smoothly with her there uh, and then getting the technicians in being all trained up but i'm trying to keep everyone happy and that's why we meet up there once a month because it used to just be I'd never see them. They'd be out doing jobs. The office would be running itself and I'd be out trying to get new work for the business. And uh, now I thought we're just too far apart, myself and the team. So now we meet up once a month, a few drinks in the town, uh, and that works well. So um, it took three, four years to get to that sort of stage. 
Yeah. And that evolution of almost figuring out what you need, because just because you're, just because you've got the process and the detail doesn't mean you can do all the process and all the detail. You know, if you're doing sort of some of the, the, the implementation at a higher level, that integrator role that Sarah talked about, doesn't mean you can do the office management stuff. So finding somebody who can then go and do that and just frees up some time to be able to go and do the things that you're good at and that you're best at and that currently there's only you that can do that. I think I just tried to take on too much. And that was the thing. Whereas I think I should have invested in someone in the office earlier, but it was just more money going out. You think, how I can afford this? And it would just freed up so much. I think stress would have been the first thing it would freed up and um, lots more of my time to actually grow the business quicker. It's all about you know, having taken that risk. And uh, usually I'm quite risk averse when it comes to financial things, but uh, that is one thing that I should have put into place straight away from day one, get someone I can trust in the office and then start growing the business that way. The listeners will definitely I, I know will resonate that, with that because yeah. it's something we hear all the time and we've struggled we about it in yeah. our business. Like when's the right decision to invest in additional resource and the next level of expertise because it's more expensive. Yeah. You know, when's the right time for that? And I think we hear that we work a lot with businesses that are scaling and it's the timing of that and the decision finding the right people that you can trust, all of that. It's it's one of the biggest challenges, I think, in a business that people yeah, face. It is. It's interesting. We were just having that conversation. Um, and one thing I remember somebody said to me years ago, and I've used this ever since, is like, write down everything that you do and put an hour, right. hourly rate against right. it. And then think about how much you charge yourself out at or you should be paying yourself. Yeah. If you've got tasks on there that are like, 10 quid, five quid, 20 quid, they're not like you're massively overpaying yeah. for that sort of stuff. And that advice was like one of the biggest pieces of advice that I ever got as a business owner. And, and it's not always as linear or as simple as that, but actually if you can either recruit in or outsource or just do whatever you can to get all of those sort of 10 pound tasks off your plate, Without a doubt. you'll just be so, you'll have so much higher value. Yeah. I got told, um, I read a book and then I got told about it. Um, there's a military charity called Heropreneurs, ex-military guys who own their businesses. And then you get put with a mentor who's made it in life. My mentor, uh, John, has been with me for about two years now. And he sort of said, right, right every position in your company. So uh, director, you know, office, technician, accounts, whatever it be, per box, and then just do the little, you know, tree diagram and then put people's names in of where they sit, so the technician's name. And then my name was going into most of them boxes. He says, right, now is what you need to do. You now need to start taking your name out of the boxes and putting someone else's name in there. And that's what I've done. So they're not doing sort of eight, nine, eight boxes, my name in at least sort of six of them. And over time, I've said, right, Sam, or the girl in the office, so, I mean, she's going to take over the accounts now. That's my name going out of that. She's taking over that. So-and-so's taking over this. And it's been it's freed up my time. And it's quite nice now that I can think, right, I can actually start growing the business, going to meetings, going to networking events, and going down that road rather than trying to spin all the plates at the same time because it's just an impossible task because most business owners that I speak to on these networking events, you know, tell me, they say, oh, staff's a nightmare. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. There's not enough hours in the day. And you think, we're all in the same boat. It's unbelievable how... Everyone is in the same boat, even though you're sat in this room thinking, oh, I bet they're doing better than me, I bet they're doing better than me. And they're not. We're all just in the same boat. Absolutely. Yeah. I just want to go back a little bit before we wrap up, because I know it's something you're super passionate about is people coming out of the military and then sort of the civilian jobs that they then do and the things that they go on to. And I just want to touch a little bit on something you'd said around um, when I asked you the question about who inspires you most, and you'd actually talked about 
your friends, your ex-military friends, some of them may be still in there. Um, and that it's actually, it's not about a competition thing though, that it's more about like inspiration for what you can do. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, the guys about the military first and foremost, they offer so much to the workplace that just doesn't get highlighted by civilian employers. I mean, it's everything from the timekeeping that I mentioned earlier on, all the way to how they present themselves. Um, and none of this is on a piece of paper. You just won't find that as a qualification. People just look at qualifications, are they suited to the job? So first, I think the military veterans have so much to offer workplaces that it's just not highlighted enough in the civilian world. Um, but also, yes, I've got friends in pest control or other businesses. And when I started my business, I always thought, well, I've got to do better than them. When I see them doing something better than me, I've been like, oh, God, I need to improve, I need to improve. And it got to the stage where I just started talking to them, going right, and they would tell me what they're doing in their business and how they're achieving their goals. And I thought, do you know what? It's not a competition. It's actually we're all in the same community here. We've all got businesses. So let's try and lean on each other to try and, you know, get onto that next rung of the ladder. But for the first two years, I just saw it as a competition. I've got to try and beat him. I've got to try and beat her. I've got to do better in this thing. And it just wasn't needed. Now I look back and think, why was I like that? I should have just opened up to them and said, right, can you help me with this? Yes, people always love to help, especially business owners to business owners. They'll always offer a lending hand. And that was something, you know, I certainly got inspiration from after speaking to them rather than seeing things as a competition, just speak to each other. And that's what I do, you know, weekly now to the guys who own businesses, catch up, have a beer, talk about things and yeah, helps me out if I can help them out in any way, especially small businesses who are trying to grow. Um, I will do. Yeah, that's a lovely lesson, isn't it? It's like, and I think a lot of people who are maybe motivated by achievement, which I know you are, can get stuck in that thing of like comparing. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think the best way to look at people is for if people like amazing people that we work with, you know, I look at Laura and I think she inspires me to be better, not for me to want to be better than her, but for me to be better for me. And I think, you know, it's that it's taking inspiration and not using that comparative bit where it can be self-deprecating or actually really almost like, you know, Mm self-destructive where you're comparing yourself and you're not meeting the standard, um, using them, people around you and people that you see as inspiration is, is a fantastic tip. I think for the listeners. Once you just pushes you and pushes you and you always, you know, that's what gets you out of bed in the morning. So if you've got you two working together, you know, you see Laura doing this, that and the other thing, well, I need to, you know, push myself a bit harder or vice versa. I think once you've got someone there to push you, um, it makes things so much easier and it's more enjoyable, believe it or not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. As a little wrap up, we usually ask the question of like, what's next for you? But I want to ask you something slightly different because we know there's lots of things that you're going to do, some new ventures, obviously you're growing your current business. Um, but I know one big thing in your book, you share lots of really interesting stories. Um, a lot of them from sort of your private security world and tell us that this is, this is a bit of an unconventional podcast and people are thrown into all sorts of different situations in entrepreneurship and life. Tell us the most bizarre situation that you've been in and how you dealt with that. Uh, oh, there's been so many, especially. Or one of them. Yeah, no, no so <laughs> I mentioned it in the book. I think one of the scariest times, which is a very bizarre situation, was um, we flew into Baghdad, me and my colleague, and um, we were told that a private security detail in armoured vehicles, guns and everything were picking us up. And we see this guy who was smoking a cigarette at the bottom of these steps, holding up a thing with our name spelt wrong. It was like... Mark with a, you know, missing the R on a case which said Mac and then Peter missing an E. We were like, is this us? 
So we said, oh, yeah. And he, said, he had his name right. He said, that company name at the time. I thought, oh, there must be us. Security details. It was quite early in the morning there in Iraq. So the time difference, our office was shut in London. We thought, we don't know what to ring. So you know, we, we went into this car park and there's this one old Toyota just rusted. It was the only car there in this sandy car park. He said, that's our vehicle. And I was like, oh, my God. We're going to be driving through Baghdad <laughs> in this vehicle. We got in. The windscreens were smashed. And I said, look, can I just double check outside of yours? So I looked at him. The company names were right. The names just felt wrong. I was like, oh, God. Tried to get hold of people in the American camp. Couldn't get hold of them. I said, right, it's only a 10-minute drive. Let's just go for it. So we started driving through Baghdad. And next thing you know, this guy pulls up outside a mosque and legs it. And we're outside this mosque. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's a setup. And the doors to this mosque open and all these men come out and the car is in the way of the door. I've locked all the doors quickly and they're banging on the windows. Open up, open up. And I thought, it's a setup. I looked and I see the keys in the ignition. So I was like, right, that's it. So I jumped in the front seat, trying to start this car. It was a nightmare. I was like, please stop. Anyway, just about, about two minutes, just so I was starting this car. He came flying back to drive and was like, oh, holding up a pack of cigarettes that he just bought. And I was like, Anyway, he's jumped back in the vehicle. People were upset outside. And they were upset because the door of the car was blocking the mosque doors. Anyway, I've gone off at this guy, you know, nearly going to you know, strangle him. We get to our American base and the company was meant to raise the security detail. I said, oh, they called off last minute. So we had to get this guy. And it was like, it was just to save them some money, this Turkish company, some money. But that was one of the most, yeah, oddest, oh scariest times. I did think I was going to be getting dragged away with my colleague. Um, <laughs> somewhere not very nice, but uh, thankfully we managed that one. But there were so many of these stories that happened over the years. And, you know, and it's me sort of sense-checking things like I've said about my behaviours, but these sort of things, it's just been like, oh, do you know what? Let's just get And it could have been so detrimental <laughs> to our lives. We've had so many of them over the years. It's just been, we look back and we laugh now, but the time, I don't know, we made it out alive some of them situations, but that's just one of many. One of many. One of many. Well, that is a good way to wrap up, I think. But thank you so much for joining us. We have really enjoyed the conversation and all of the stories. So thanks for taking your time. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it and I enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks Mark. Mark. Thank Cheers. You. So let's wrap up with a few key takeaways from Mark's episode. The first one, looking at the entrepreneur profile and that typical profile that we talked about, that often there's this misconception that entrepreneurs have to be the visionary. And actually what Mark showed with his dominant behaviours, he's got behaviours that sit more in line with an integrator. And the fact that actually you can be the entrepreneur and be the integrator. You don't have to be visionary. You don't have to go against the grain of your dominant strengths. You're going to be far more valuable to your business if you sit within that integration role and do all the phenomenal things about integrating the strategy, driving the processes, inputting all of the detail. And that actually that visionary role can be held by somebody other than the entrepreneur. The other piece we talked about was this really lovely piece about using others as inspiration, not competition. And that actually, even if you've got a competitive nature, it's fine to want to be the best, but that doesn't mean that you need to do the sort of self-deprecating comparison that often comes alongside that, using other people as that inspiration instead. 
And the last thing, you know, we talked about quite a lot throughout the episode of almost like feeding highs. You know, Mark talked about one of the driving factors for going on The Apprentice was, you know, he'd come out of a military career, out of the security side, out of lots of travel and being in lots of, he talked about one particular story, but being in lots of sort of situations where adrenaline kicked in and actually a big reason he went on The Apprentice was sort of feeding that hit. And we see this a lot with entrepreneurs where you can see sort of the highs and once something, once a business feels steady, often you'll see people go on and start a new business. And often what they're doing is they're feeding that high, they're feeding that adrenaline. And the watch out with that is just that you don't go and always have to go and do something that maybe distracts you from your existing business, that actually you're looking for ways to feed that high maybe in your existing business in your personal life in travel in lots of different ways it doesn't always have to be a new venture thank you for listening to misbehave follow us so you don't miss out on other episodes 